0: want to talk to uh, boys and girls for just a second and you adults can listen in. Have you boys and girls ever tried to prolong going to bed? You know, like say to your mom or your dad, oh, but I really need a drink of water. And then after you get the drink of water, I have to go to the bathroom. and. Can you tell me another story? (laughs) What's going on there is that you recognize your parents as your authority, but you hope that you can bargain with them to get what you want. Now, this is for everybody. We sometimes think about God that way, don't we? Sometimes we think of God as indeed our authority, But we think that our job is to bargain with him to do things that might make him happy in order to get what we want. Here's the lesson that I want to share with you this morning. We cannot make God into a superstition that we're seeking to please so that we can get what we want from him. Rather... He is a good God who delights to give good gifts to his children, and he knows what's best for us. Over the last few months, we've been in a series in the book of Judges, and we're going to continue that here today with a story that I don't know that very many of us know. It's in Judges chapter 17, and it tells a story about a fellow who thought he could make a bargain with God. He thought that he could, he recognizes God as his authority, but he thinks that, boy, if, if I just do the right things here, I can get from God what I want. Judges chapter 17, would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? I'll read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll make our way through the passage, and then go through the rest of the chapter. Judges 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. "...to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you." So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image that was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest." In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Please have a seat. Have you ever wondered why it is you do right things? I mean, we all puzzle over why we do wrong things, but have you ever thought about why it is you do right things? Here's a story of a fellow who took 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. He stole from his mother. And then when his mother uttered a curse against whoever it was that was stealing, he he he's kind of worried and so he actually repents. He brings the money back to his mother. Um and with that, it seems together the mother and the son then make objects of what i would call divination trying to know god better but it's weird they make idols a carved image a metal image they make what's called an ephod it's just a way of trying to figure out god's will they have turned it into a family enterprise he installs his own son as a priest here Um, he's formed his own little cult worship center. His good thing, repenting of stealing, has turned into a superstition because he somehow thinks that by doing these things, he will please God enough so that he will get from God what he wants from him. that the mother and Micah are sincere, there's no doubt. They are very sincere in their beliefs. It does not, what matters, though, is not the sincerity of one's beliefs. It is the truth of them. And that they are so wrong is even more clear. Sincerity is not the measure of truthfulness. Being part right in getting the name of the God of Israel correct, does not make up for their clear disobedience to God. There are so many sins that are here in their making of these idols and establishing a worship center in their home that I won't even go into the time to mention them all. It's, it's very, very wrong. Here's something that I'll put in terms of school terms. Schools just started you ever had a test where you didn't do that good but nobody else did either? And so the teacher gave what's called partial credit. I actually made it through engineering school on partial credit. Okay. Wouldn't have made it otherwise. Here's an important thing to note though. There is no partial credit when it comes to knowing God and eternal life. You either get it all right or it's all wrong. There's there's no in-between. There's no partial credit. Let's look at the rest of the story here, verses 7 through 13, I'll read them for you. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there, and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. And here's the point of the whole chapter. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. This is superstition masquerading itself as true worship. There's this Levite that we're introduced to in verses 7 and 8. A Levite is a person who was designated as a one of the tribes of Israel to be able to perform the worship of God as God had commanded in Exodus and Leviticus. The word the book of Leviticus is named after the Levites. He's Staying in the environs of Bethlehem, trying to find his way in the world, he, he leaves where he's at. He's not going to serve the Lord at the place designated for it. He's not joining other Levites, but instead he's going it alone and finds himself at this weird private home worship center belonging to Micah. And notice that there's a negotiation for the Levites' services in verses 9 and 10. The Levites described as a young man in verse 7, and now he's called upon in verses 9 and 10 to be a father, a spiritual leader. But he's not going to serve with the salary that's outlined in Deuteronomy 18 for Levites. Instead, he bargains for his services. And how terrible it is, isn't it, when people who are so-called religious leaders make uh their the the monetary remuneration of their services a, a big deal. And That's what's going on here. There's doubts that plague Micah. The doubts that plague Micah are doubts that plague us all. As he's there with his private little worship center, with his son as the priest, this Levite comes along, and and he and Micah has some questions in his mind. The questions that are in his mind is. Am I doing it right here? Am I doing enough? Have you ever thought about that? Am I doing enough to please God? I've made my idol. I've built my shrine. I've installed my own son as a priest. But the question that plagues him, is it enough? No, he thinks. I need more. Maybe this guy, this Levite, will get me over the hump. And so, in verses 11 and 12, the Levite joins and leads the idolatrous worship that Micah has in his home. Now, here's some things that we need to note. The Levite has all of the outward qualifications. But just because someone has outward qualifications does not mean that they speak for God. In fact, such trust can be misplaced badly. And what's really ironic here is that the deal in verses nine and 10 was that uh, Micah says, stay with me and be a father, be a spiritual leader. But he's a young man. And so what's kind of funny about it in verse 11 is that the young Levite became to Micah like one of his sons a father in terms of spiritual leadership, a son in terms of meeting material needs, and Micah ordains the Levite. It literally means he filled his hands with the things that the Levite needed. And the Levite becomes the family priest in this weird worship center in the house of Micah. Micah's conclusion then is, now I've done enough. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me Because I have a Levite as a priest. His conclusion, given his assumptions, uh, is perfectly good. But Micah could not be more wrong. What wrong assumptions did Micah make? First, he believed that the infinite God of the universe could be placed in the box of his little worship shrine in his home. Second, he thought, if I make the right inputs, I'm going to get the right outputs in life that I seek because God will bless it. He's bargaining every bit as much as a little child does bargaining over bedtime. Mike is saying, I tried to do my best by making the idol and getting my son to be priest. Now I've done it the right way and I've gotten a personal Levite to serve as priest. He's still doing no better, is he? And people with the right pedigree of having the title of Levite, he is assuming, are trustworthy guides to God in his ways. How wrong that is. Notice here that there is no appeal on the part of Micah, his mother, or the Levite to the instructions that God has given the people of God. He's not trusting to the word of God, He's trusting to his own thinking. This Levite has been corrupted too, and we'll see that next week when we look at chapter 18. What's wrong with Micah's conclusion now that I know that the Lord will prosper me? Well, what he's saying is now. Up until now, I've not had all the places, pieces in order, but now I do. Have You ever made those bargains with God? Oh God, if you do this and so, then I will do this. And, and I'll, now I know that God will bless me now that I've made that bargain. Notice he says, now I know. We do not know the future, nor do we know God's ways. To say I know what's going to happen in the future is a scary thing to say. I know God will prosper. The expectation of blessing in this life is the single greatest error that people make in their relationship with God. The thought that things are going to turn out exactly the way we expect and want. That's not how life works in a sin-cursed world. It's not how God works either. And his ways often are not our ways. Now I know that God will prosper me. Notice he's living for himself. What a ridiculous notion that the God of the universe is there just to give him what he wants. Now I know God will prosper me because he presumes to know the mind of God when God's ways are infinitely higher than ours. Now I know God will prosper me because I have... That suggests he did it by his own effort. It suggests that those who do not have will never gain the promises of God unless they get. You know, I've got a Levite, that's why I'll be blessed. You don't have a Levite, therefore you won't be? How the truth gets distorted into a huge lie. Having God's name right is not enough. It's true, Micah did not worship Dagon, the god of the Philistines, or Baal, the god of the Canaanites, or the Ashtaroth, their female consorts. He worshiped the Lord, but in name only. He did get God's name right, but having the right name is not enough. You know, we can say that we love Jesus, but getting his name right is not enough. And fashioning an image, a physical image of God like Micah did, diminishes God. Micah picked and chose what aspects of the God of his imagination to emphasize. Have you ever heard of someone say, uh, Well, I don't believe in a God like that. Or, my God would never, or, I like to think of God as. When people do that, they're fashioning a God out of words, just like Micah did out of silver. As Tim Keller notes, we cannot reshape God to fit our society or to our own hearts. Instead, we need to let the real God reshape our hearts and our society. There are a lot of people who think that the way to eternal life is doing the best you can. There's two problems with that. You'll never know if you have it, and you'll never know if you've done enough. That is not a path to eternal life. Some folks try taking some parts of the Bible and then filling in other parts with whatever feels good to them. But what that means is you're not having a relationship with the real God who is there. You're trying to have a relationship with the God of your imagination. That's a comfortable God who will never contradict you, but it won't be the real God. How much are you holding back from the real God? Did you know that his invitation is there? He wants all of you, and he will give you all of himself. How do we know him? We know him through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God in space and time sent Jesus who is truly God and truly human to come to this world to live a perfect life and then to die as a sacrifice for our sins so that whoever believes in him not trying their best not thinking that if they do one more thing it'll be enough just trusting him we have a righteousness not of ourselves but a righteousness that comes from jesus christ you can be rescued from that painful question is it ever enough and that very difficult problem how can i know that i have eternal life the problem is centered on the fact that you're trying to do it alone without the help of god himself the goal of true faith is to give god access to your heart as Keller says, so that he can get you to do what he wants. Don't make God into a superstition whom you seek to please so that you can get what you want from him. Instead, trust a loving God who gave his son to save you from your sins. There's another kind of bargaining that happens One happens at the beginning of our lives when we're little children, we're bargaining with our parents about bedtime. There'll come another one for every one of us when we go to die. And we'll make perhaps some bargains saying, Oh God, I hope I've done enough for you. I hope my good things outweigh my bad ones. That would be a terrible bargain because you can't make it to God on on those terms. Instead, at the end of your life, I want you to be able to say, not because of who I am, God, but because of your great love for me. I have placed my faith in your son, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin. And now, because of him, I have a home in heaven. The Apostle John wrote it this way, this is the testimony God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Please pray with me. God, we quiet our hearts before you thinking about all the ways in which we have bargained with you. More silly than a child with a parent about bedtime, we've, we've made our bargains and thinking like Micah. Oh, now I've done this or such a thing and now I know you'll prosper near me. I'll, I'll get what I want. When all the time you are an infinite God who just looks down with compassion and love on us. And longs for us to know you personally, intimately, deeply. And you have sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we may be forgiven of our sins. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate that he's victorious over sin in the grave. And so Lord, I pray that as many as you would call in this moment would receive your gift of salvation. They would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I've tried to make bargains. I've tried to think that there's enough I could do to please God. I know I can't now. I, I'm trusting what you did at the cross to forgive me of my sin and to give me new life now. Grant to me that eternal life that the Bible promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.